Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to Tech Talk. Again, I'm your host, Joey Klein. Uh, we have two great guests here today. Uh, first, we're going to talk to Finn Glover of Matcha. Hi. Hey, Finn. Thanks for having Thanks for coming by. Uh, and then we're going to talk to uh, Ravi Venkatesan from Bridge2 Solutions. Hey, Joey. Great to be here. Great. Okay, guys. So, um, but I think both of you have interesting Atlanta stories to tell. And one of the things that we like to focus on in the show is obviously your businesses and what you're doing and what makes that special, but also why Atlanta is a great place for you to have your business. Um, so we're going to start with Finn and then we're going to go to Ravi. So Finn, you know, if, if someone is to look at your website, they see a timeline of a, a, you know, business starting one way as roots rated media and transitioning to another over time. And so I'm curious to learn more about that evolution of what seems like somewhat unintended consequences of moving from one type of business to another and where you guys are now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, the backstory on the company is that um, I founded it in 2012 as rootsrated.com. And rootsrated.com was a publishing business that was focused on providing information for outdoor enthusiasts and adventure travelers all over the country. And we grew that business for several years. Um, the business model was selling sponsored content, native advertising. And throughout that process, we uh, learned what I think many publishers learn, which is how to be excellent content creators, how to distribute content effectively across channels, and how to measure content performance. Um, to the maybe unintended consequences that you referenced, we also built relationships with dozens of marketers in the outdoor and travel space. And that gave us quite a bit of, uh, I think, perspective uh, and intimacy with those marketers that informed uh, the challenges that we that we expected them to face over the next few years as uh, marketing and e-commerce marketing in particular moved from more traditional formats and into more digital formats. Um, and I think the insight that we that we came to have was that marketers would have to be excellent with content if they were to personalize the customer experience across a very digital funnel. And we were good with content. Uh, we knew how to create it. We knew how to distribute it. And so in 2015, we made the decision to start building technology uh, to help small businesses uh, and very lean marketing teams leverage content to grow their businesses. So because it's it's somewhat um, – it's not necessarily intuitive, right? Like one would think that a marketer would be fantastic at building content for their own organization. So is the issue that – they just don't have your technology or is the issue that you're talking about small businesses that just do not have the bandwidth to create content? I think it's both. I mean, I think for, for our market, we're typically selling to small businesses. And so the size of the marketing team almost never exceeds three people. And it's usually one person. And that requires that they wear many different hats and be generalists. Um, using content in really effective ways is very, very time intensive. Uh, and the reason for that is there's an enormous amount of energy that must go into production, but also subsequent bodies of energy that have to go into distribution, promotion, conversion, and, and ultimately measurement. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the spectrum of that problem is often too big for the very small business to handle well. 
So let's drill down on what we mean when we say content. Sure. Content is this really big, broad thing. Um, and for, for matcha and for the companies that we serve, content means blog articles. Um, blog articles are a particularly, particularly nimble form of content because they can be uh, utilized to drive traffic. They can be utilized to convert leads. They can be uh, utilized very effectively in direct channels like Facebook and email marketing. Um, you know, of course, they can have organic search traffic value. Um, but they're a low-hanging fruit for, for small businesses who are trying to grow with content. And so are you finding that businesses are generally reaching out to you because they recognize they have an issue and they recognize that you guys are great storytellers? Or is a lot of this right now in the, uh, you know, you're, you're still certainly in the early stages of, uh, you know, your company's growth. Is a lot of this an outbound push to say, look, you know, you might not think you have a problem, but we think you do and we think that we can help you. Great question from maybe, maybe just to kind of frame how we think about customer acquisition at this stage. And, and so everybody that's listening has a sense of the stage that we're at. We raised our series a a year ago. Um, and so we're in a stage of customer acquisition where most of our work is outbound, which is driven by an inside sales team using sales development representatives and account executives. And then, um, our, our goal is to have, anywhere from 15 to 25% of our customer acquisition being inbound marketing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we're tracking against that. And so that's, that's kind of the stage that we're at. I think over the next few years, the goal would be that um, we're driving a lot more inbound interest than we currently are. Any specific industries that are really uh, relevant for Matcha or just any, anyone with uh, you know small business who needs some marketing help? We have taken a, a vertical approach to the way that we've built the business that's informed by the content that we have aggregated from third-party publishers. Um, so the first vertical that we have sought to penetrate is the outdoor industry vertical, um, as well as the travel vertical. But we've begun moving into other verticals that are tangential, um, health and wellness, food and nutrition, um, motherhood, and early parenting. Hmm. And so are you, okay, so you've, you've got, you know, sales reps who are pounding the phones, um, you know, obviously trying to get introductions. Do you then have, you know, a bevy of content creators that you have targeted specifically for their experience with these different verticals? Or is the, is it more important that someone is just a great storyteller and a great creator and they can meld that to, you know, a client specific story or need? It's a great question. So we have two types of content um, that the platform provides. The first is what we call licensed content. Licensed content is content that has been aggregated from premium third-party publishers that are very vertically focused. Um, so imagine a fly fishing brand. Uh, we aggregate content from Field and Stream mm -hmm. as a publisher, um, and we sub-license that content to the company. We also have a type of content that we call custom content which uh, is essentially on-demand, bespoke content that's ordered by the company. And when that happens, we assign a freelancer who's an expert in that vertical to produce that content. 
Interesting. So part of your business, you're, you're essentially an aggregator, right? You have part of it is unique content creation. Part of it is, look, there's all this fantastic content out there anyway. Those businesses aren't doing anything with it. And you, client of Matcha, might not be finding it. We are going to put this together and give you your pick as well, assuming that this relates to your business. Yeah, I think that that's a, maybe a nice way to describe it, an aggregator. Um, you know, I think what we learned, and we learned this through our, our experience with rootsrated.com, because we had been a publisher, we had amassed thousands and thousands of articles over the years. And those articles seeded our initial content marketplace. And we began licensing that content to customers. And what we realized is that by licensing content, we could substantially reduce the costs of content for the small business, who's obviously resource-strapped most of the time. Uh, that led us to building relationships with other publishers and, and then ultimately with a, a larger company out of New York City called NewsCred, which is the leading enterprise content marketing platform in the country. And we have built a partnership with them that allows us to tap into their network of publishers and sub-license content from their network of publishers directly through the NewsCred content API. Huh. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking about on, okay, so there's the, and, and I'm, I, these are my terms, right? You've got the creation side of your business. You have the aggregation side of your business in terms of content. I'm thinking of the creation side and I'm thinking of the world in which we live, um, in which, you know, the attention span of even the most, you know, educated and vigilant adults has just, I think, been completely diminished by our, uh, you know, bombardment of content every single second of every single day. So how are you training your content creators to produce really relevant, compelling stories that actually grab someone's attention when it's harder than it has ever been? Hmm. Um, it's an interesting question because that, that actually hasn't felt like uh, a major challenge for us. And I think the reason being is that our roots are in publishing. And so everyone that we have ever worked with from an editorial standpoint has, you know, come from a career in journalism uh, where content creation has been their, you know, the soul of their career. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we rarely need to train people on how to create good content. We do have obviously thousands of articles that have been produced, all of which have been consumed by millions of people. So there's lots of data points to inform content templates and, and uh, content types that perform better than others in certain direct channels. But in terms of quality, I think what's most important is that there's excellent editorial direction, a good writer, and then good collaboration between the two parties. And, and the way that it shows up, well, and that's, frankly, that's, that's interesting that, and of course, it speaks volumes to what you're doing, right? That a problem that I would perceive as an outsider is not necessarily a problem at all. Um, let, let's take an example here of how this works. So, okay, let's let's say, for example, that Ravi at Bridge2 Solutions is using Matcha for content creation. Your content, essentially there, you you are sort of delivering a, a white box solution, right? Like this is as, as if it was created by Bridge2 Solutions. It's not like, you know, Bridge2 Solutions featuring Matcha. Correct. Yeah, essentially. And, um, you know, we, we don't sell to B2B companies, though mm -hmm. potentially that's an opportunity in the future. We're focused very much on the e-commerce business. Gotcha. Um, you know, if you if you can imagine the e-commerce business, the, the primary difference between the e-commerce business and the B2B business is that the e-commerce business is selling to many different customers. I mean, the potential customer base is often much bigger and they're often selling to emotional buyers rather than logical buyers. 
Um, and so the type of content you, you really need as an e-commerce marketer <clears throat> is the type of content that would appeal to the experience or the lifestyle that is suitable to that e-commerce brand's product. And so uh, when the when the e-commerce marketer logs into the platform, they can search for content uh, in a library by a variety of tags. So let's say you're a, a backpack company. Mm-hmm. You can search for content based on backpacking in the Atlanta area, find a host of articles that are relevant to that end audience, publish it directly to your CMS through our platform, uh, and then go to market with that article through direct channels like Facebook and email marketing. Gotcha. And so uh, I'm assuming that sort of the the genesis of the company um, focusing on, you know, wilderness and outdoors and certainly still have a hand in that, I'm guessing because you're CEO and founder that that is partly related to your own passion. Well, f- yeah, outdoor recreation yeah. was certainly a, a lifelong passion of mine. Absolutely. Um, and that, that was certainly the company's roots. And of course, you've certainly gone beyond that at this point. Um you know, you were speaking to, okay, we're very focused on e-commerce marketers right now. Maybe B2B is a future consideration. You know, you're at still very early point in the business, just raising a series A. So is, is the goal right now? And it can, of course, be dual goals. Is it scale as much as possible within, um, you know, our current potential customer base? Or is it, you know, we have technology that we think could apply to a lot of other verticals and develop that, or is it both in tandem? I think it's both in tandem. You know, when we raised the Series A, we raised the Series A because we felt that we could build a really meaningful and valuable company. And we also felt that that would require multiple rounds of capital. And so <clears throat> I think of the, seri- the, the time between Series A and Series B as a time when the company is trying to prove a hypothesis. And proof is... Uh, is achieved when the business is very predictable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as we think about predictability, what we need to have uh, achieved by the time we go raise our Series B is that um, our uh, sales growth is predictable through an inside model, um, that our uh, customer churn is um, below a certain point, uh, and that our gross margin has achieved a certain point. And we, when we've achieved those three pieces, I think we have a very, you know, confident barometer and it makes sense to raise a B or it does not. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm curious about your sales process, particularly, um, the use of SDRs and inside salespeople. And, and this is partially, um, sort of a, a nerdy infatuation of mine because I, that was the first thing that I did out of school. Um, and it can be an amazing training ground for future adventure and business. Um, I think the ability to convince a stranger of something is a skill that is useful in pretty much any endeavor, whether it's personal or professional. Um, it can also be extremely grueling and there can be uh, burnout, you know, and you know, some people don't really last more than 12 or 18 months. And so I'm curious what your philosophy has been in hiring SDRs, how you motivate, um, how you don't, how you sort of train them to not let what can be very emotional lows of that job get to them to produce their best work and grow. It's such a good question. I think that, I think that for a business like ours, building an SDR team is is one of the hardest components of the business. It's one of the highest leverage components of the business. It's one of the areas of the business that is fraught for the most mistakes. Um. To the question of how do we think about training SDRs and, and maybe backing up to how we think about interviewing and hiring. 
we look for people who are, um, I would say, intrinsically curious and driven. Those are the two things that we look for most. I think secondarily, we look for people who have a natural capacity for stoicism. Um, and when people are hired, we do think about stoicism in the context of all our training because we believe that emotional control in the context of work that requires so much um, objection all day long yeah. and rejection all day long uh, requires a groundedness philosophically in the human being uh, to allow them to excel. So stoicism, you know, I think uh, percolates across all kinds of trainings, whether that be call recordings or, um, you know, objection handling or, you know, playbook building. Um, but that's, that's how we think about recruiting and hiring. Um, the other thing I'll say is when we hire an SDR, there's one thing that I say to all of them, and that's that this experience needs to be viewed by you as a two-year MBA, where uh, you will emerge on the other side of this with three types of optionality. The first is that you've learned how to sell and you're making an, a living that is allowing you to do the things that you want to do in your personal life. And you're excited about that. The other type of optionality that's given you is it's taught you about the startup, the business, and it's given you intellectual curiosity and interest in maybe other components of the business. And maybe there are lateral moves into other areas of the business or there are you know, upward moves into management. And the third type of optionality is that you know how the skill sets to sell. And that means that you are highly valuable in the market to go to a new company to take on your next challenge or to start your own company. Um, and I like to ground every SDR that we hire in that perspective, because I think it gives them the clarity that they need to be successful in the role. I think that's great. Um, I, I really resonate with that emotional stability. It's something that I have called living in the emotional middle for many years. Um, you can celebrate wins and you should celebrate wins, but you can't let them get to you too much. And same thing with the lows, Right. Take, take a little time. You can feel bad about it. That's totally natural, but don't let it consume you. And the more that you can exist on that even playing field, um, the more emotionally stable you can be, the better you're going to be. But, Absolutely. but so it's, you know, it's like, okay, you can, you can certainly glean things about someone from the interview process. If you guys experimented with any sort of personality test to try and understand greater, um, insights that maybe you can't see at first glance. We have, we have not done personality tests. The way we think about the interview process is certainly kind of an initial screening call, um, where we're evaluating things like tone and how the person carries themselves. We've certainly looked at the resume and evaluated the experience set though. Often the SDR is is right out of college. Yeah. Um, and so there's not a lot of data to go off of. Um, the second thing that we do is we put them through um, phone, uh, essentially kind of cold calling exercises where we're evaluating how they perform on the call with a script. We're looking for things like tonality. We're looking for uh, natural response to objection. Uh, we're looking for how they can control a narrative and, and control a conversation. Uh, and then the third thing that we do is we bring them in front of our team. We have our team grill them and we evaluate how they perform in that type of pressurized situation. And then the fourth thing we do is we call references and, and references are essential. Um, how, how big is the SDR team now? We have, if my Matt, if I can remember correctly, we have six SDRs right now. Okay. We're about to hire two additional that start in August. That's great. Yeah. It's, it's helpful to have that camaraderie there. Um, you you really well it's more than helpful frankly i think it's critical um i don't think that this is when i see places where it's you know one two maybe even three 
I just don't think that's enough to really have that support system of people who are going through the same thing as you are every single day. I agree. I think it's really hard. I think an SDR team is a sports team. I mean, it really has to be viewed as an athletic environment where there's enormous amount of camaraderie every day. Definitely. Um, so let, let's get to the Atlanta portion of this conversation. So you recently picked up and moved Macha from Chattanooga to Atlanta. I did. Yep. Talk to me about that transition, the reason for it, and how Atlanta has treated you thus far. So um, maybe just as a backstory, um, my father was from Atlanta and Chattanooga not being that far. I've come to Atlanta my whole life. Um, and, you know, always it was the big city. And when you're raised in Chattanooga, you're taught to in some ways, really hate Atlanta. It's the big traffic metropolis. Um, several years ago, uh, my, my co-founder joined the company um, and he had moved from San Francisco to Atlanta to follow his now fiance who was going to Emory Medical School. And so for years, he commuted from Atlanta to Chattanooga. And uh, I would often spend a week or so every other month here and got to know the city quite a bit. Um, and this was... You know, I think at the time this was maybe even pre-Beltline or Beltline was just beginning. So I was kind of witness to some of the really amazing changes that are happening in town. Um, when we raised our Series A a year ago, we raised from a fund called Tech Operators. Um, and I think that we had always uh, felt that if we could raise a, an institutional round of capital, we would uh, need to move the company to Atlanta for talent purposes. When the round did close, that was quite evident. Um, and we felt like we needed to move to Atlanta, not only for engineering talent, it's very difficult to recruit engineers to, to smaller cities, but also for sales talent, marketing talent, customer success talent, the type of talent needed to build a good SaaS business. And so we moved the company in, um, I believe it was April of 2018. Mm -hmm. We basically uh, got temporary offices at the industrious space in Midtown. Um, it allowed us to hit the ground running. And we then moved into our own offices uh, near Crog Street Market in September of last year. And the city has been absolutely phenomenal on all fronts. I think we were able to, you know, we essentially have gone over the last year from 15 people to 40 people. Uh, we've hired people that have come from leadership positions at some of the best SaaS companies in Atlanta. It's accelerated our collective institutional knowledge as a company. Um, and... It has, I think, made the company much more diverse uh, from the standpoint of skill sets and backgrounds. Um, and so I couldn't be happier with it. That's great to hear. Um, and look, I'm, I'm certainly not surprised at any of that. I think that we are really, we're, we're having a moment in this city. Hopefully, certainly, it's not just a moment. Um, hopefully, it's a, um, you know, a sign of, uh, you know, future potential and growth. But it, there really does seem to be a lot of, attention on this place. And I think that in the past, you know, Atlanta has had a little bit of an inferiority complex. Um, I think that when you have to keep saying you're an international city, that maybe you're not an international city yet. Um, but, uh, and, and look, maybe some of that is, you know, well, the, the more that we affirm it, the more it becomes true. Um, but now that you see, you know, look, certainly a move from Chattanooga to Atlanta makes sense, but we have seen just an influx of uh, cities in the Pacific Northwest and, you know, the Bay Area opening up regional offices and in some um, instances, bigger offices than they have, you know, kind of in their own home location in Atlanta. It, it definitely, I, th I think that 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 metro chamber pitch of like, we have the biggest airport in the world. It's like, okay, well, it's it's a bit more than that at this point. We can kind of, you know, 
that that shouldn't be the entire pitch. I think it's a lot more than that. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's it's obviously one of the most impressive cities from a higher education standpoint. Um, obviously, the airport from a travel standpoint, it's got huge companies that are breeding grounds for great innovation. Those those large companies have invested in really impressive ways into the technology startup ecosystem. What Cox has done with Techstars, what what the company, what what's happened at Georgia Tech with TechSquare Ventures, it's it's a really flourishing environment, um, and I've I've loved being here. That's great. Well, it sounds like it's uh, just the beginning of many things to come for you guys. Hopefully. Okay. So if someone wants to learn more about matcha and get in touch with you, how do they do that? Getmatcha.com is our URL. And uh, I think my cell phone number still might be on the website. So uh, <laughs> that's it. My email address is finn at getmatcha.com. And for those of the uninitiated, how do you spell matcha? Matcha is spelled M-A-T-C-H-A, like the T. Excellent. Okay, Finn, thanks a bunch for coming on. Thank you for having me. Okay, Ravi, we're going to switch over to you. How are you doing this morning? Very good. Excellent. So you guys, um, you know, we had some interesting Atlanta conversations um, as well. And when we had coffee a couple of months ago, I first want to start with just basic elevator pitch on what Bridge2 Solutions is. Um, and you are the chief technology officer, correct? That's right. Okay, so, so give me... The uh, give me the executive summary here on what you do at Bridge to Solutions and what the company does. Yeah, so uh, you know the the chief technology officer role has kind of evolved a little bit. What I do really today reflects more as a chief product officer and technology officer. So in other words, I lead all of our product development and technology de- development as well as delivery. Now, in terms of the company itself, Bridge Two is a company that unlocks alternative currencies. And then you go, what's that in English, right? <laughs> so we look at cases where somebody has access to value and reward programs and incentive programs are a great example, but they are not really able to use that currency to shop and buy things that they need to. So to give a simple example, you may be, you have an employer who is rewarding your performance and they're giving you points or gift cards of some kind. You have a credit card program that you're part of and you're spending money and you earn reward points. You have an airline that you fly on. You have a hotel that you st- hotel chain that you stay with. You have all these different currencies. You know, you may have, you may be trading in cryptocurrencies. You know, there's just all kinds of things. You have your payroll, which itself is a form of currency, right? And it's not easy and seamless to use all of these where you want to use them. They are fragmented. So Bridge 2's whole mission is to unlock these currencies and unlock the value. Oh, sorry, go. I, I, yeah, and the way we've done it so far is that we've powered loyalty and rewards programs for some of the top financial institutions, airlines, hotels. Um, and in North America, we have a dominant position in that marketplace. We power most of the top ones. And that's the journey that we've been on the last 10 years. Okay, so when you say unlock those currencies, yes, those are very... You, you cannot spend those all in one place, right? And it's not like there's a conversion method of, I have, you know, this many airline points. What what does that actually mean? Well, the, I mean, the, yeah, yes, the, the airline has that conversion. But if you compare it across airlines or providers, it's very different. That's right. Okay, so is the goal to allow someone to spend those points more easily and or is it to find some sort of way to pool disparate forms of loyalty together into kind of one common form of currency. 
So that's a really, really good question. If you and we have to kind of go back a little bit to the origins of uh, rewards and loyalty and sort of alternate currencies themselves, right? If you think about uh, even the the old days when there were no currencies, people would barter. You know, here is my goat for a bag of rice, right? And 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 that's how the uh, exchange of value started. And then some smart dude had this idea that you know you could use either brass coins or you could use some other form of tender, and then that represents value that you know you and I can exchange. Of course, then you know you you had the the government start issuing currency, and then you had the gold standard, and then you have where we are now. But what has ended up happening is that value, even though we believe it's fixed, is not fixed. It's always variable, and there is always an exchange value when you go from one currency to another, including rewards. But what's been elusive is what's the most valuable currency? People think it's the dollar, or people think it's you know the money I have in my on my credit card balance. But really, now the most valuable currency has become loyalty. So one of the things that we stumbled on was that what is it that drives a person to go through extraordinary means to earn, retain a certain currency? And that's loyalty. You know, people go out of their way. I'll fly only on Delta Airlines. I'll stay only with Marriott. I'll only, you know, go do this. And why? Because I'm accumulating my points there. And why do I accumulate my points there? Because I can redeem them and I can get that iPad for my son's birthday. I can do this. So it becomes very aspirational versus my paycheck, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what led us to this market a realization that people value it. And now on the other side, for businesses, you know, large enterprises and so on, that currency is also valuable because it's not just about giving you 10 points, which are worth, you know, $100. It's more about how do I make you engage with my business more and more because I'm incenting you. Mm -hmm. So the concept of pooling really hasn't worked because if you pool it, there's no differentiation between the value that is issued to you from one company, let's say Delta Airlines versus another, let's say United Airlines. that, That brand loyalty engagement is all over. And so it's failed especially in the American market. I guess at that point, it would if you pull it together, it somewhat dilutes the purpose of the loyalty. Correct. Yeah. But at the same time, for the consumer, it's very convenient. Right. As a consumer, I do want to take my reward currency from multiple sources, pool them, and be able to use them to get what I want. But as a business, that's not a good deal because now you're not loyal to me anymore and you don't know the difference between what you got from me versus what you got from the other guy, right? Well, and that business, of course, cannot track what that customer is doing. Exactly. Yeah. So what Bridge2 does is it creates the best of both worlds. We create, we have a SaaS platform that a business can take and completely purpose for their own use. And for example, if today you go and you utilize your uh, ultimate rewards from Chase or you know you go and you use your uh, miles from Delta in different ways they use our platforms but they do it to differentiate from each other so our platform is built in a manner where our customers are able to completely differentiate from each other but deliver the value to their consumers in a manner that makes sense for them so you you kind of have three different parties with which you're interacting. You've got let's we're just going to use kind of dummy company names. You've got Delta, okay? Mm-hmm. You have the provider of the loyalty points program whatever. You could also have an employer 
that is using loyalty to um, you know reward their employees. Let's take by employer JLL. Okay, and then you've also got the end user of the points. Correct. Okay, so that seems that 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 seems like a very complicated triangle to um, to kind of align everyone's interests. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And and that's what makes us uh, unique and differentiated. We really don't have a competitor in the marketplace that is exactly what we do, and that's because we've been able to bring together this, uh, to your point, triumvirate of you know, program sponsors, as we call them, who have a currency that they are issuing, mm-hmm. which is any kind of a currency. And then on the other side, we have consumers that want to use it. Then we have merchants that have products and services that those consumers want. So our SaaS platform is like an Amazon and an Expedia put together, right? So you as a consumer can take your rewards currency from anybody and then go book travel, order a gift card, order some merchandise, get event tickets, you know, go buy some ex- exclusive experiences, all those things. How does a consumer get access to the platform? So usually through their program. Okay. So if you are a program, um, and I'm, I'm making up all these examples, right? Of the course. names I'm using may or may not be our current customers, but I'm using them so that consume, you know, people who listen to this can identify with them. So let's say I, um, you know, I'm banking with Wells Fargo, and if we were to be one of the providers of their solution, I would go to Wells Fargo and I would go to my rewards program and then I would use that currency and be able to um, get rewarded. I would be able to get a, a computer, for example, or I would mm-hmm. be able to book a vacation, for example, things like that. Okay. So the channel tends to be the program sponsor. I see. Through which they access our platform, but they don't recognize that we are a B2B company. So nobody would recognize our platform and associate it with our brand. They would always associate it with our customers. Correct. Very similar to what we were discussing with Matcha. No one is going to tell that it is Matcha actually writing the content similar with Bridge2 Solutions. It's going to look like it's completely administered by Wells Fargo. That's right. Okay. Um, what is, let's say Wells Fargo is not using you. Mm-hmm. Okay. What are they doing right now to solve for this? So... Companies who are not our customers and have the same kind of uh, a solution, they tend to use a fragmented set of players. So they might have a provider of gift cards and, you know, they might have directly worked with them and they might have a provider that does travel for them. You know, for example, Expedia, which does consumer travel, also serves this market. So so it's a fragmented set of uh, entities that they have to work with to put together their own solution. Mm -hmm. Some of them do it themselves. And in some cases, they just focus on rewarding people through statement credits and through, uh, you know, just gift cards and statement credits, which are kind of the most common ones. We don't consider statement credits as a good reward because, you know, it isn't memorable and there's nothing you associate, you know, you you just got some money back, but it isn't valuable in in any differentiated manner. You know, one of the things that, that you and I talked about when we had coffee a couple months ago was the, the el- very, the elusive nature of the unspent loyalty points throughout this country. Sure. Everyone listening to this has, you know, gift cards, online credits that maybe have, you know, $3.40 left on them. You don't really know. It's, you're not going to call the number to figure it out. And at the end of the day, you just, you know, you chuck away the gift card, right? Um, and the value of that, I mean, it has to be absolutely massive. And so 
how how has the landscape changed in terms of how the companies you work with look at that unspent value? Uh, it's a it's a very very good question. So to just ground all of us, right? A couple of um, factoids around that. The just a North American view is that there are about one hundred and sixty billion dollars of unspent loyalty currency. Right? Just North America, and the the world view is probably three times to five times that. Out of that. There's about thirty billion that keeps getting earned further. So this is not this is not just a problem; it's a growing problem, and it's sitting on the balance sheets of companies as a liability, mm-hmm. right? That they have to get rid of at some point, somehow. In the old days, they used to expire these things, right? You have these many points, and these points are going to expire by X date. That's not happening anymore because consumers don't like it, and if your program offers points that never expire and your competitors has points that expire, guess where you're going, right? So that paradigm has changed. So now companies, which used to be in this model, we used to call it the breakage model, where they assume that a certain amount of points expire, they're not in that mode anymore. So they're saying, how do I make sure that every dollar equivalent of points that I'm issuing or miles actually get used, get redeems, and the consumer associates it with my brand and values me as having given them that reward. So one of the products that we've come up with to address that problem, which doesn't do the pooling, but kind of gives you the benefit of pooling as a consumer, and it's going to be absolutely revolutionary. Uh, And it's hitting the market this year. Our first four customers are going to roll out this year, and they are in various segments. So there's a hotel, there's an airline, and there are a couple of financial institutions that will roll this out. You will be able to get your rewards from them in your mobile wallet, so whether it's Apple Pay or Google Pay. Mm-hmm. So you'll simply be able to say, link my rewards account to my mobile wallet, and you can spend that currency anywhere where Apple Pay and Google Pay are accepted. Okay, so uh, so for example, I get some sort of, un- let's take the Wells Fargo example again, okay? So mm-hmm. I have unspent loyalty from Wells Fargo. As long as that is in my Apple wallet, I can then go to a place like a Starbucks or a Panera that accepts Apple Pay and use that currency at one of those commercial entities. That's correct, yeah. And it could be any bank, it could be any airline, it could be any hotel chain. Yeah. It could be a retailer. So you could have rewards from Best Buy or Macy's, and you could say, I want to use that currency as well. And in this way, you are getting the effect of pooling those currencies, but at the same time, you know where you're getting the currencies from, and you continue to have brand loyalty to them. And there's more. This product also lets you combine those reward currencies with merchant offers. Hmm. So if you think about the experience, what's going to happen is I'm standing outside a, um, a Best Buy store, and then I get a message based on geolocation on my phone that says, hey, you know what? If you use your, I'm making this up, right? Hotel chain X points at the Best Buy store today, then you get 10% off on Samsung TVs. Samsung participates in that. Best Buy participates in that. The the hotel chain that you're using rewards from participates in that. And you as a consumer win. Mm-hmm. So it's a... It's an incredible ecosystem play, and it's taken us a long time to get all these players together and make this happen. But the value to the consumer and to those businesses is going to be incredible once this rolls out. That 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 is that definitely solves a problem and sounds exciting. So this is something that you are working on as we speak. Uh, this is something that we've been working on for three years. Yeah. We actually launched the product in beta mode in 2017 
did pilots throughout 2018 and the the first quarter of 2019 and now we are doing final launches that will hit the market um towards the later part of uh fall this year okay. so there are four companies that will launch this product this year that's great that is very cool and exciting mm-hmm. um especially for someone who deals with technology and product yeah yeah okay so um we are we're going to get a little bit critical um at this point so I think that it is important to recognize what the ecosystem in which you work does well and also, you know, what it could do better. I think that the best friends are critical with each other, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, companies to be the best friend possible to the city in which they operate, they need to be critical of that city as well if need be. And one of the things that you and I discussed is you see a real issue with um, the availability of STEM talent in this state, um, you did some work with Governor Deal a number of years ago on this issue, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, wh- why why you feel that we're coming on a real um, on the head of a real problem in this area in the next couple of years. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. the The reference was the, that Governor Deal actually did a phenomenal job. He set up a a high demand career initiative forum, which had all the CIOs and CTOs in town on it. And as well as the vice chancellors of different universities, you know, representatives from um, the school systems. So he kind of brought all the right minds together to say, what's the problem? How do we frame it up? How do we tackle it? Right. And it was great collaboration, but it became very evident that we were coming from such different places. We might have as well been from different planets and, and or spoken different languages. Right. It was to some extent, it was the Tower of Babel. You have uh, a CIO that is saying, uh, you know, here are the problems I'm facing. This is the kind of talent I need. And this is what is not available in the numbers that I need. Uh, and then you have somebody saying, these are the programs you are, we are introducing in the school system in K through 12. This is what we are doing at the universities. And, you know, it's going to have an effect in 15 years, right? And the CIO is sitting here saying, I need somebody who can sling code into production tomorrow. I'm just going to go to Iron Yard or I'm going to go to the private sector and find some other solution. So they're just, there is a huge mismatch between the sense of urgency that the private sector, the industry, the companies that are in the city have and the level at which talent is needed versus available um, and what the school systems and the university systems are equipped to and are trying to accomplish very different um, time horizons and you know that's that's creating a challenge so to me this there, there seems there's a short term there's a short term issue and a long term issue and hopefully a short term solution a long term solution okay so you know look in terms of training the next generation look the way, the way that I look at you know whether they're 10 years old or, you know, and going to middle school or 18 years old and going to college, right? That sort of talent, I mean, it's almost like whiskey, right? Like, you know, you're, you have your inventory, which needs to age for X number of years before you can actually sell it. Okay. And so you have to be planning for the future in how you develop that talent. But then there's the immediate problem of, okay, that's fine. And hopefully we can rectify that. But what do I do in the short term right now? And so do, do you see any solutions that give you hope on either side? I, I think it's, uh, it's solutions like Iron Yard, which is a, uh, you know, they're just, these are companies that are able to train people quickly mm-hmm. and help them adapt to a different profession, right? So you've got 
people that have been teachers, that have been lawyers, that have been all kinds of other professions that are just suddenly waking up to this opportunity that is technology and saying, if I go through a three-month program, a six-month program, I can get this right skills and re-equip myself and sort of get into this second career. There's a huge opportunity there, and quite frankly, it's needed because we simply don't have the right supply. Right now, almost every company in Atlanta and Atlanta is one of the better markets to get talent. But even in Atlanta, every company is just starving for engineering talent. And we've seen salaries and hence our expenses go up, you know, exponentially. The, the, the general inflation is 3%, but inflation in engineering wages mm-hmm. have been ranging in the 15-20% range. Is this a... Is this more of an Atlanta development of talent issue, or is this an issue that the supply of organizations that have started and moved to Atlanta is so great that the talent has not been able to keep up? I I think that is definitely something that exacerbates the situation, right? No doubt, as more companies move in, they increase the demand, and as, you know, incredibly good efforts from whether it's Atlanta Tech Village, you know, the startup accelerator. So all these, the ecosystem that we are creating for startups and technology companies mm-hmm. is brilliant. It's very good and it's it's going to yield a lot of innovation. It already is, but it also increases the demand for engineering talent. So now you've got, uh, you know, engineers that have a choice, you know, do I continue working my job at UPS that I've been at, you know, this is now year 16, or do I go join the startup and make 30% more? A lot of times they make that choice. Now UPS is saying, I can't compete with the wages that the startup is paying, but I still need that engineering talent. What do I do? And I hate to say this, but a lot of times the choice for a large company is let me just move those jobs somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And that's our loss as a city. It's our loss as a as an ecosystem of businesses here and so on. So I think the, the short-term solution that gives me hope is all these companies that are helping people adapt to this skill set. Mm-hmm. And uh, But the problem is not an easy one, and it's not a small one. It's a very large-scale one. Well, and look, your, your point is well taken, and I've frankly seen it from a real estate perspective. Um, and so, look, there's, there is the situation where someone is opening an office here because they need talent and can't find it in whatever city they're in. But I've also certainly seen your UPS example, where new leadership comes in and says, we really can't find what we're looking for. It's cheaper for us to close this office and just move it somewhere else because it's not working here. Right. Yeah. Now, not to, on the positive side, like I said, I'm seeing a lot of very clever and creative training solutions. I think this phenomenon of MOOCs or massive online open courses mm-hmm. has been unbelievably helpful. Now you've got people going to Coursera and Udemy and, you know, they're skilling and training themselves in a more effective manner than they ever could. And I think companies are starting to get more open-minded that I don't need somebody who's gone to Georgia Tech and got his computer science degree for what I need in terms of this job and this function. I just need somebody who knows how to do it and can prove that they know how to do it. So yep. that that shift is starting to take place, which I think is very positive, again, for us as a city, you know, ecosystem of technology companies. Okay. Well, glad, glad to end that one on a slightly cautiously optimistic note. Yeah. Um, Ravi, if, uh, if anyone listening to this wants to learn more about Bridge2 Solutions, how do they do that? So you can visit bridge2solutions.com, and that is bridge spelt out and the digit2 and then solutions.com. 
You can also write to me at uh, Ravi, R. Venkatesan at bridge2solutions.com. And my profile is on our website as well. Fantastic. Finn and Ravi, thank you both so much for joining us. And everyone, thanks for listening to Tech Talk. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs>